we have to be prepared all the time. We have to be prepared in two years. We have to be prepared in five years. We have to be prepared in 10 years and, and 15 and 20 and so on and so on. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. You can't fly until you buy, and we'll get into the United States Air Force's FY24 budget request with the Services Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, the one and only Honorable Andrew Hunter. And we'll have this week's headlines in Air Power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace. Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F-35. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these strategic capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Uh, JJ, what's the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Vago, the U.S. Air Force has published its unfunded priority list, and the top items are accelerating the E-7, the replacement for the E-3 Sentry AWACS, and retrofitting F-16s with Northrop's APG-83 radar. We may ask Andrew Hunter about some things that aren't there in a couple of minutes. Antonov in Ukraine has announced plans to rebuild the one-of-a-kind AN-225 Maria that was destroyed in the opening days of the Russian invasion. They are taking parts off the wreck right now and actually have an extra fuselage sitting around the factory to recreate the heaviest cargo aircraft in the world, although most of the work will be done after the war is over. First flight of the Army's future armed reconnaissance aircraft prototypes from Bell and Sikorsky has been delayed until 2024 while they wait on the engine to mature. The supplier, our sponsor GE Aerospace, notes that supply chain issues are at the core of the delay. Canada has issued an initial request for information to buy up to 16 P-8 Poseidons to replace their CP-140 Auroras. That's what we call in American English a P-3. And Belgium is looking for 20 new light helicopters for its military and national police, in case you have a few sitting around. Vago? <laughs> uh, that, was, uh, that was a good one. And uh, the Auroras, uh, I would point out, are probably some of the most uh, modified airplanes in the world, uh, and the Canadians are very proud that they give a capability that no other P3s can uh, have, albeit uh, very old, if well-maintained airplanes. Let me ask you uh, a question. There has been a growing sense uh, that the future armed reconnaissance aircraft, the FARA program, is becoming increasingly vulnerable. The biggest advocate for the program, obviously, was uh, is the Army Chief of Staff, General Jim uh, McConville. He's a uh, an Army aviator uh, and was one of the driving forces behind this program. The Army just acquired a whole bunch of Apaches, or at least remanufactured Apaches. Do you think this engine delay affects the outlook for that program because, you know, April 7 is the deadline to understand what happens with the future long-range assault aircraft, the Flora, which Bell won, but, you know, it was uh, contested and protested by uh, Sikorsky and Boeing. And there was this sense that Bell wins Flora and then, you know, Sikorsky could end up with Flora. But increasingly, there's this sense that Flora could go away. Does this engine delay play into that, do you think at all? 
The Army says that it doesn't because they're saying that even though there is a delay in the first flight of the prototypes, they still expect to make the down select at the same time. The open question is, fine, once you make that down select, is there an actual procurement program and how many aircraft are involved? That has probably a lot more to do with the Army's budget next year and the year after than the technology program they're engaged in right now. And one of the other things that's not on the unfunded priorities list, which we're going to ask uh, Assistant Secretary Hunter about, uh, was the AETP engine. Was that something that to you was surprising as somebody who observes the space? That was the biggest surprise, frankly, in the entire budget to me, because it had been pretty clear from everything we'd heard from the Air Force that that was the last program cut from the budget after the White House passed back some reductions. And before that, it was there which means that it is the prime candidate to be the number one thing on the unfunded requirement list, and yet it's not there at all. So yes, I look forward to uh, Mr. Hunter's discussion of that program. Uh, it is interesting because when uh, I was out in Denver for the Aerospace Warfare Symposium, uh, the, which was right before the budget came out, just the sheer number of folks, whether they were wearing Air Force uniforms or whether uh, they were in industry talking about the importance of this, and, and I'm not necessarily talking to GE folks, I think folks will recognize they sponsor this program, but this is not why we're saying this, that just the number of folks who are saying the new engine will be important to maintain the relevance of the jet long into the future. And so there were a lot of hopes that there would be a new power plant that gives you that greater range of cooling uh, and power. Do, do you think the, the resuscitation, I mean, you can understand why Ukraine wants to raise the Phoenix from the ashes, but is this folly given how much money it's going to cost in order to do that, right? Some estimates have this at the many, many billions of dollars. Well, it's a tremendous national symbol. I can't sit here and tell the Ukrainians how to spend their money. And the fact that they said that most of the work is going to be done once the war is over, and presumably there is ongoing reconstruction of Ukraine, I think is very different from saying, no, we're going to spend it now. But at least for aviation geeks, to have an aircraft that is the only one of its kind in the world, have that be destroyed, I think seeing it come back will be an inspiration around the world. Uh, I would uh, I would agree with you. Uh, seeing that thing fly uh, has been uh, one of the more uh, amazing uh, things at an air show, uh, just given it's just staggering uh, size and and to walk through it, uh, you know, you think a C5 galaxy is big and then and then you get into that thing and you're like, holy moly. Great. And that was a plane that was originally built to carry the Soviet space shuttle. So it's a fascinating reminder of a time when relations between Ukraine and what is now Russia were very different. In, in, indeed, the Buran and, uh, you know, folks uh, have, a, have a tendency of sometimes forgetting that Antonov was a Ukrainian company that was supplying the Soviet Union uh, with uh, aircraft uh, and aircraft uh, technology. And before we hear from Andrew Hunter, a reminder, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security and hosted by the editor of the Defense and Aerospace Report, Vago Maradian. And our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show next week is sponsored by... HII, 
GE Marine, a GE Aerospace Company, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And joining us now is an old friend, the Assistant Secretary of the United States Air Force for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, the Honorable Andrew Hunter. Just yesterday, he testified before the House Armed Services Committee, where he used to be a staff member. Uh, Andrew, which is uh, a better view from uh, the staff seats looking down or the witness chair looking up at the Tactical Air and Land Forces Subcommittee? Well, it's definitely uh, more comfortable to be in the staff seats than to be on the witness stand, uh, Vago. But and good morning, by the way, to you and JJ both. Indeed, we're uh, honored uh, to have you on. JJ, uh, your predecessor on the House Armed Services Committee will start off the grilling. Go ahead, JJ. <laughs> well, I don't think it's going to be all that terrible, Vago. Andrew, the Air Force has a very ambitious modernization plan underway. You're modernizing fighters, modernizing tankers, bombers. Got a program now to modernize AWACS and the E-4B airborne command posts. We're starting to see a program to modernize cargo aircraft. And that's all before we get to the non-air power programs like the Sentinel ICBM and networking. What were the major lifts that let that all fit into your FY24 budget? And are you building yourself a procurement funding problem a couple of years out? Well, yeah, JJ, I think the way you characterized it is is insightful because you have to go back to the strategy. And what the strategy says is we're trying to meet a pacing challenge. And I always like to say the pace of the pacing challenge is, is fast. Uh, it's super fast. So that is setting uh, the tempo at which we have to be able to modernize our force. Uh, and in fact, uh, the work that the Secretary of the Air Force and our Chief of Staff, General Brown, uh, gave to the team, uh, both Air Force and Space Force, was to meet the operational imperatives that they defined, seven operational imperatives. Uh, and as you dig into that analysis, what you find is we have to modernize across the entire force. That is just the reality. And it has to be an integrated force, to your point about you know the networking and the links, is that is key to achieving the capability that we're going we're going for. So so that set the standard of what is it that we have to achieve. Then the hard work was figuring out how do you make that real in terms of acquisition programs and how do you make it real in terms of fitting it into the budget? And that was, I mean, believe me, truly a challenge. Uh, months and months were spent um, making that possible. And I would say it was possible because we were very disciplined in setting priorities within the Air Force. Uh, but that only got us so far, probably only got us about a third to half of the way to being able to afford the program that we've ultimately put forward here. And the, and the difference really came because we went back to, uh, to the Secretary of Defense and, and his team and said, in order to do the things we really have to do, we're going to need more resources. And those resources were provided. You're increasing fighter procurement, and that's very welcome. The F-15EX is going from 80 to 104 airplanes. The annual F-35 uh, buy is going from 29 to 48. But you're still retiring about a thousand aircraft, of course, across the course of the multi-year budget. There's a demand for more bombers, as JJ just mentioned. Right, we need a new cargo aircraft. All of these other costs are coming due as well. Uh, there's a concern that you're not moving fast enough. I know folks have gotten wrapped around the axle about whether the window is two years or five years. But on the one hand, we keep saying we need to move faster. On the other, some of these dates are things being delivered in the mid-2030s or, or the early 2040s. At the end of the day, um, supply chain obviously is a constraint, but how much faster can and should you be moving on getting these aircraft fielded? And what are the other ways 
of sort of shaking the Etch-a-Sketch in order to be able to do that? Well, Vago, you know, we're trying to balance risk across multiple, uh, multiple axes here. And this came up quite a bit in testimony that I gave yesterday in the House Armed Services Committee about the divestments. And, you know, what we were conveying is, look, the aircraft that we're divesting are not the aircraft that are going to help us against the pacing challenge. The aircraft that we're acquiring and acquiring in part by using the resources that we're saving by divesting uh, the older aircraft are the ones that are going to help us address the pacing challenge when they arrive. And so uh, so we think we're, we're hitting the right balance of risk on uh, divestment versus uh, aircraft acquisition. Then there's the balance of when in time are you trying to trying to prepare for conflict? And the answer is we have to be prepared all the time. We have to be prepared in two years. We have to be prepared in five years. We have to be prepared in 10 years and, and 15 and 20 and so on and so on. So uh, we can't try to optimize our approach for any one point in time because we don't know. And, and for that point, also critical to our strategy is we're trying to deter because we prefer not to have to fight this conflict. We'd prefer to deter it instead. So that requires us to be ready on all of those timeframes. And so we've balanced risk uh, by pacing out different programs that will deliver at different times with different kinds of capabilities. So one example is our collaborative combat aircraft. It is part of the NGAD family of systems. NGAD is our next generation air dominance system. NGAD is a very high-end capability. It's going to deliver in the early 2030s. The collaborative combat aircraft is part of that family of systems, but it's going to deliver sooner. Uh, the collaborative combat aircraft is going to give us affordable mass uh, by teaming with our crewed aircraft, uh, our fighters, and we are targeting delivery of that system in the 2020s, in the second half of the 2020s, to be affordable mass uh, available earlier to us. So again, we're trying to make sure that we have capability in the near term and we have a ready force. We want to have capability in five years time, uh, but we're also going to deliver higher end capability that'll arrive later that'll make sure that we are also equally well prepared and able to deter uh, in the 2030s and beyond. Part of delivering that capability, as Vago mentioned a little earlier, is fighter production rates. At yesterday's hearing, the Director of Naval Aviation, Rear Admiral Andrew Loisel, said that the F-35 rate of up to 156 per year was constrained by fuselage production and that the Joint Program Office is looking to augment and or replace the current vendor. What does that search mean for the program's schedule and cost? Well, contractually right now, uh, the, the rate of 156 per year is the rate that we have planned for the next three years. And of course, that 156 is not just for the U.S. and certainly not just for the U.S. Air Force. It's also for uh, all of the services and our international partners and allies who are major purchasers of this aircraft and FMS customers. So beyond the, uh, the original F-35 partners, uh, we have received significant orders through foreign military sales for the aircraft. Uh, countries like Japan, uh, South Korea, Israel, Germany recently uh, coming aboard as a, as a customer as well as Finland. So, uh, so that production is, is really equipping an entire alliance if you will, and one that I think uh, has really come together in a significant way through this partnership, the F-35 program. And we've seen with what's been happening in Europe over the last year that uh, our partners who fly the F-35 uh, have been uh, flying you know, and, and doing missions in defense of NATO, and that's been highly effective. And that cooperation 
is highly effective. So uh, we also have uh, final assembly sites uh, in Europe. Uh, there is a, a assembly site in Italy. Uh, so that's extra capacity. And I think that's what then gets you to the fact of, hey, the fuselage, the mid fuselage production has kind of become the limiter because we've only had one production location uh, for that asset. Uh, so expanding that does open up the aperture. And I think uh, if we continue to see the robust interest in the F-35 from foreign nations, that production rate could go up. Uh, and I think, you know, at the end of the current lot purchases, which we have a three-year lot purchase we've just started, that would be potentially a very good opportunity to consider an, an increase in the production rate. Uh, that could also be a window where uh, as we start to complete the F-15EX buy, we would have the option to consider increasing our buy if, uh, you know, if it could fit with, as you articulated, the many other priorities in the Air Force budget. Um, getting a greater rate is important, but the capability of the airplane is is as important. Yesterday during the hearing, we uh, heard in testimony that the existing engine, Pratt & Whitney's F-135, is running out of power, cooling, uh, and has reliability has been having reliability problems. Secretary Kendall has said the main reason for not doing the adaptive engine technology program or the AATP engine that's being competed for by GE and Pratt uh, for F-35s and other applications is the Air Force just ran out of money. It couldn't find the money to do that. And of course, we know that there was a decrement from the White House on the overall budget that forced everybody to scramble at the last minute. The overwhelming consensus is the plane needs a new engine to remain relevant into the future. This is a two-part question. If that's the case that this is important, why isn't it on the Air Force's unfunded priorities list? And second, how does the F-35 remain relevant over the long term without a new engine that improves range, power, cooling, all vital for the Indo-Pacific in particular? I mean, a 30% range increase uh, is not nothing to sneeze at. When we know that if we do an upgrade of the current engine, that's not going to become effective until 2030 at the earliest. Uh, well, Thanks for that question, Vago. It was long, so I'll try and hit all the parameters I've hit. But if I miss one, let me know. So, uh, so we had you know kind of two independent engine issues here. One was you know wear and tear on the F one thirty five, which was leading to some uh, some gaps uh, in uh, engine engines across the fleet in the last two years. We have largely addressed that problem. Uh, I think uh, General Schmidt, the the head of the Joint Program Office testified yesterday that there is only one empty uh, engine hole in the entire F-35 fleet uh, as a result of power modules, uh, which was the problem that we were experiencing you know, over the last 18 to 24 months. Uh, so we really, uh, through incredible work by the Air Force team at Tinker Air Logistics Center, have really gotten a hold of that and good work also by Pratt to help us gotten that program under uh, problem under control. Second issue was this issue of the aircraft that during its acceptance testing had a uh, had an engine fault that led to a, a you know an accident, and that issue also is largely uh, well on its way to being solved. Uh, there's an engineering fix. They they determined the cause of that. It was uh, it was something that happens uh, occasionally early in an engine's uh, life cycle due to a, a, a harmonic resonance uh, that was unanticipated. Uh, they've devised a fix for that uh, in the near term and the long term. And those repairs are underway. So the, the, those aircraft are up and flying again, and we're, we've resumed taking deliveries. On your broader question about kind of AETP and the future of, uh, uh, of the F-35 engine and, and how it contributes to the capability, the thing that I like to focus on is the big picture of what we have in our FY24 budget request. You know, So we went into FY24 
There was no funding for AETP and FY24 and beyond in the 23 budget. There was no funding for an engine core upgrade to address the the uh, the life uh, chewing up of the life of the F-135 that we've been seeing. Uh, there was not a, a really robust funded program for our future engine uh, development, uh, which we have a program called Next uh, Generation Adapter Propulsion, uh, which is kind of that next generation beyond uh, the F-35 uh, in support of, of, of our other aircraft development programs. And what we came out with in the FY24 budget is a, is a balanced plan. Uh, we have funding for an engine core upgrade so we can provide the power and thermal cooling at spec for block four of F-35, which is that suite of advanced capabilities the Air Force has to have to meet the pacing challenge that, that we've been talking about. Uh, we have robust funding for the next generation advanced propulsion program, a competitive program, uh, which it would not probably, we would have had to rapidly downselect to one under our previous budget. Now we have the opportunity to have a robust design competition between two providers and get all the benefits of that competition, as well as support the industrial base uh, and the design capacity uh, that we need. And, and we've improved our ability to look at technology insertion into some of our older engines that are out there in the fleet. So I think we've actually got a pretty balanced plan. And obviously in your question, there is this question of what happens beyond block four and the ability to go to even more advanced capabilities in the future. And uh, that is an excellent question. That's one we'll have to consider in future years. But for this year, I think we have a we have a pretty strong plan for the near term. Uh, why not move to that next generation power plant now? Right, I mean, you you could have that new power plant in a decade, as opposed to addressing the shortcomings of the existing engine in in the midterm, right? That's correct. That's and you know, as the secretary articulated, that there were capability advantages to the AETP engine, uh, operational advantages. But you know, the real challenge here was we had to do the engine core upgrade because the Navy needs it, the Marine Corps needs it, even the Air Force needs it for our older jets that we've already fielded with F one thirty fives. And to do the ATP as well as engine core upgrade, the funds, you know, uh, we didn't have the resources to do both. Well, even if you have all the fighters you want, they can't do that much without the right weapons. We've seen in Ukraine just how quickly munitions get used on a modern battlefield. Are you looking at ways to accelerate weapons like JASM-ER and LRASM? And where are we with hypersonics, given the moratorium to uh, end of the ARRW program. So let me just, sorry, talk a little bit about ARRW. There was a article that came out after my hearing uh, kind of focused on the future of, of the Aero program. That is still to be determined. So we have a test program going on with Aero, which is one of our hypersonic uh, systems. And when that test program is complete, we're going to make a decision about what the future uh, for that program is. So uh, still to be determined on that. Uh, it is the case right now that we do not have resources planned beyond the current test program, but we will evaluate that in our in our next budget process. On munitions more generally, there we have a, a very good news story in our fiscal year uh, 24 budget request. Uh, we are posturing for two multi-years uh, for uh, advanced munitions in the Air Force budget. Uh, we are, in fact, going to be uh, negotiating a multi-year for JASM, uh, and the, that's the um, 
that is a missile that is uh, and very common in many respects with the lorazem that you also mentioned. So uh, that multi-year would be supportive of both uh, both efforts. Uh, the the JASM variant is procured by the Air Force. The Lorazm variant is procured by the Navy. We're working in concert with the Navy to do a, a multi-year procurement that will support the production of both, uh, both systems and allow us to field advanced variants uh, of JASM that we need for that pacing challenge. And you know, with enhancements that include the ability to go after more high priority targets and eventually and the additional range. Now you talked about the the extended range capability. So we're working very hard on that. I think we're well postured to get uh, a multi-year in place. We'll give industry the uh, the visibility over the long term that they need to make capital investments, increase the facilitization uh, to, to give us production rates that we're looking for there. Uh, and it is a government commitment to actually acquire uh, those munitions in volume. The other one that we're working on is AMRAM, uh, which is the other one in the Air Force portfolio. Uh, where we're, uh, you know, we're undergoing a transition there. We've been uh, building and buying AMRAMs for a long time. It's a phenomenal weapon and, and it's been upgraded multiple times. Uh, and it remains the world's, uh, you know, one of the world's leading uh, air-to-air weapons. We have a lot of uh, partners and allies who also depend upon AMRAM. And so our multi-year will not only help us keep fully uh, weaponized rails, full rails on all our aircraft, for the U.S. forces, but most importantly for our allies and partners over the long term. Uh, so we're putting in place a multi-year for that. Uh, those are just two out of, I think, 18 multi-years that the department uh, proposed for munitions across all of the services. Um, I want to uh, take you to the question of uh, acquisition speed. You were the rapid acquisition uh, guy at the Pentagon at the height of Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. Um, and have uh, made clear that speed is is critical even earlier in this conversation. And yet the concern is that the service is actually moving more slowly, right? That was sort of a little bit of the vibe uh, that I unfortunately picked up in Denver. Uh, and so there's skepticism, for example, that you're going to be able to develop an all-new stealthy tanker by the mid-2030s, uh, given that even the acquisition of an existing airplane in tanker form has unfortunately taken almost two decades. Ultimately, what are the things that you're doing to accelerate acquisition, to get programs right and delivered more quickly? And what are the lessons from the Ukraine war? I know Dr. LaPlante uh, at uh, Acquisition and Sustainment at OSD is working to sort of tap some of those lessons. What are ways to do this faster and what are you learning in the process of, of watching the Ukrainians to do that? So in terms of going faster, if you look at the programs where we are doing that successfully, and you know, I think, let me just take one minute to say, you can certainly highlight programs that have existed uh, in the Air Force or the Department of Defense that have taken longer than they should have. We have other programs. We have programs that have gone exactly on schedule. We have programs that have gone ahead of schedule. So let me just talk a little bit about what makes the successful programs successful, because I think there's uh, there's important information in that. I would point to the B-21 as a program that, you know, honestly, when, when we were formulating that program, there were many in the Department of Defense who argued exactly what you just argued, uh, or just say, you know, cited others as arguing, uh, which is, hey, it can't be done. Last time we tried to build a bomber, it, it you know, we didn't, get as many aircraft as we wanted out of it. We produced a phenomenal jet in the B-2, but we didn't get as many of them as we wanted. And the same thing's going to happen again. 
that is not the path we're on with a B21. I, I still argue, and, and I think we're going to show that we're on a path to significant success with the B21 to field a full fleet with, at a reasonable cost. And I say that because I know where we are on our cost and schedule on that program. So how did we do that? We did that by being extremely disciplined in setting requirements for the program. And we, we designed the jet in a way that it will be adaptable over time, right? It can be upgraded. We've made a, a design choices that will facilitate the ability to add capability over time. But in the delivery of the core capability, we were very disciplined in the kind of advanced technologies we were trying to achieve. We didn't set our sights too high. We didn't bite off more than we could chew. And that has been fundamentally important to keeping the program on track and staying disciplined in that approach, not letting uh, you know early success lead us to be tempted into trying to then add extra bells and whistles on uh, when we could add those things later once we had actually fielded the platform. So we're on the cusp, I think, of, of demonstrating to the world uh, that that is the case. And of course, the rollout of the B-21 was a huge step in that direction. Uh, we are going to be similarly disciplined when it comes to the collaborative combat aircraft, which we intend to deliver in a you know less than seven-year timeframe, right? Seven years is kind of the, the standard timeframe from program inception to IOC uh, or to initial production, excuse me. IOC comes a little bit later, but uh, we're going to go much faster than that uh, on the collaborative combat aircraft. And again, our method for achieving that is by being very disciplined in the requirements we're setting. We're, we're going to industry and we're asking them to deliver capability that the, the vast majority of which they've already proven that they can do. And in some cases have significant elements of what we're asking for in production. Sir, you mentioned at yesterday's hearing also that the Next Generation Air Dominance Program was using continuous competition. I know we can't talk a lot about the platform itself, but can you tell us how the competition works? Is it a competition at the subcomponent level, at the platform level? What triggers replacement of one by another? Uh, it was an intriguing comment, and um, I'd love to give you the opportunity to expand on it. Well, you touched on one of my favorite topics. So uh, yeah, stand by. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's really at, at all of the above, right? So we want competition among airframers. We want competition on the initial next generation air dominance platform jets. We also envision that there will be future uh, iterations of the jet. We will have competition on those future iterations as well. And in many cases, the number of potential competitors will actually grow rather than shrink over time. Uh, and I think that's really significant, right? So for those who don't follow this that closely, it, the typical uh, approach in defense acquisition is sometimes you have a lot of competition initially, but then one company or one handful of companies wins and it kind of necks down. And so only those who've won in the past are able to compete in the future. And you get this continuous winnowing of, you know, from uh, in the early days of aviation, right? Quite a few competitors to a very small number of competitors over time. We've set up the NGAD program to be the inverse of that. Uh, we are working with companies and, and giving them the opportunity to compete on initial increments of programs. Uh, and then over time, actually expanding the number of companies that are eligible to compete on later uh, stages of the program. And we're doing that because, in part through making sure that the government has a, a reference architecture on which the system is being built that the government controls. And we have uh, the acquiring the critical technical data 
to enable future competition. We're also having competition at the mission system level, and that is very robust. And again, there is a separate, distinct, and really well put together government reference architecture for the mission systems. A lot of that work is being done for the NGAD program, but we're sharing it with other platforms. The beauty of that uh, doing things according to that government reference architecture is it's it's somewhat platform agnostic and we can put it on other platforms in the inventory. Uh, and that really expands the uh, the market space for our mission system providers and gives them a really powerful incentive to come on this journey with us to adopt the reference architecture because it gives them the ability to compete for more business if they're successful. Uh, and so the the ones who believe in themselves are very enthusiastic uh, participants at this stage now in this approach. So that's what I mean by uh, when I talk about continuous competitions. It's continuous competition at multiple levels for multiple versions of aircraft and with growing competition over time. Um, let me ask just a brief follow-up to that. And we've got one uh, very, very last question. So this is very much in keeping with your predecessor's steps to try to bring in more competitors at every level, right? Some have suggested that your budget doesn't actually reflect that. But the case you're making is that this is very much a continuation of Dr. Roper's approach to insert competition at every level, whether for the platform or for uh, sustainment. Well, I will say I was very pleasantly surprised uh, when, I, when I came into this job at the extent of the work the Air Force had done to to put in place the, the foundation for continuous competition. And, and obviously Dr. Roper gets a lot of credit for that because he was leading uh, the charge uh, in that direction uh, and, and helping lay this foundation. The government reference architectures that I mentioned, that I referenced, uh, and the vendor pools, uh, which are the currently robust and growing vendor pools uh, from which we're getting this competition, uh, those were in place when I arrived. So I do want to make clear that I, I can't take credit for those. I am an enthusiastic champion for them. Uh, right. And then certainly they're core to the vision of how we're executing these programs going forward. The Honorable Andrew Hunter, Air Force Acquisition Executive. Terrific to have you with us on the Air Power Podcast. Please come back anytime. Well, thank you so much, JJ. Thank you, Vago. And I will. Indeed, a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. And as we were recording this episode, word came in of the tragedy at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, involving the collision of two Black Hawk helicopters with the loss of at least nine lives. The profession of arms is inherently dangerous, whether deployed or on the training ground, and the thoughts of us at the Air Power podcast are with the families of those affected and with gratitude for their service.